If you have your a Bible, take it out and open up to that section. If you don't have a Bible, um, we would. If you don't have a Bible at all at home, we would love to get one for you. Uh, so let one of our ushers know, and we will uh, put a Bible in your hands. Uh, we also will project the verses on the screen for you if you if you don't have a Bible right now to follow along. It's just uh, wonderful. Just as Mariah was doing announcements, hearing from Kate, and uh, and then thinking about Leslie and Ann um, being a big part, along with Sandy for VBS, it was just a, a blessing to me, an encouragement for me to just think about our young folks um, stepping up and serving, and um, we are intentional in including young people in our church and in our worship. Because uh, it is not just your parents' church, uh, it is our church, it's your church, and, and uh, we are working together across generations for our future. So it's just an encouragement uh, to see so many wonderful young people. Well, we are continuing this series in Mark, uh, entitled Amazed, and this series is a journey through the Gospel of Mark, uh, learning to be amazed by Jesus, really, if you could sum up the Gospel of Mark, it would be that uh, Jesus is amazing, come follow him. Uh, and that's really what we're doing. We're learning anew how amazing he is, and we are hearing his call. We are receiving faith through the word and through seeing Jesus in action to believe him and follow him. Uh, and each section that we go through is a, is a new chance to see him, to believe him, and, and once again to follow him in his wonderful goodness and glory. So let's pray as we prepare this morning to hear from him, to read about him, to be amazed by him, and to be compelled to follow him once again. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this section of scripture. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for how amazing you are, and that you communicate to us about who you are through your word, that your word is living and active. And as we hear it, and as we hear it proclaimed, and as we read it, Lord, you yourself, you speak to us. So, Lord, would you do just that? Would you speak? Would you call? Would you teach? Would you compel us? Would you renew us in faith? Would you grant faith even for the first time for some here, perhaps? Would you use me, Lord, to serve you in all this? I would fade in the background, and you would be front and center in every way. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to start in chapter 3, uh, verse 20. Here, uh, the, the wonderful adventure of, of Jesus' ministry continues. And this section all fits together, verses 20 through 35. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called to them, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. God's word from Mark three twenty to 35. People can say all sorts of things. In our age of the internet, rumors and statements about people are everywhere. Certainly there are lots of true things that are out there, but there are also a lot of things that people say that are just not true. Have you guys ever seen the subway commercials with that guy who lost over 200 pounds, the uh, tall, thin guy, dark hair, glasses? Do you guys know that guy's name? Jared Fogel is his name. Well, they say that he really didn't lose all that weight uh, from eating Subway subs. They say that he had a cocaine habit. And that's why he lost the weight. And then he actually died. He's no longer alive. If it wasn't a cocaine habit, some say that, that uh, he had gastric bypass surgery. That's how he lost the weight. Others say he had a sickness. But regardless, that whole thing is just a scam by Subway. He never did lose weight on Subway subs. He, di- he lost otherwise, and he died. But if you ask Jared himself, he'll say something very different. He'll tell you the truth, that he is still very alive and still thin and still telling the true story of how he lost 235 pounds by eating two meals a day, one meal, a six-inch chicken sub, no mayo or cheese, chips and a Diet Coke, and then for dinner, a 12-inch veggie sub with a Diet Coke with some exercise. Lost 235 pounds. He's 190 pounds, six foot two, and very healthy and very alive. That is the real truth. But people will say all sorts of things. In this passage today, we hear people saying all sorts of things about Jesus. There's all sorts of things that they say about him, all sorts of opinions they have, all sorts of propaganda that they're promoting about Jesus. And what we learn in this passage is that what people say about Jesus does not matter all that much. People will say and do say all sorts of things about Jesus. What they say about Jesus isn't what really matters. What 
matters is what Jesus says to us. Not what people say about Jesus, but what Jesus says to us is what matters most. And that's what I want to talk about as we go through this passage. Two points. What people say, what Jesus says. We're going to look at that from this passage. What people say, what Jesus says. The first section of our, of our passage introduces us to Jesus' family. Some translations, English translations say his own people. That is actually very literally what it says. But we can safely assume it's his family because Mark likes to do this thing about bracketing stories with two similar stories from the beginning and the end. So at the end, we know it's his family. Here it says his own people. We can assume it's his family. And we meet his family. And we see them coming and they want to seize Jesus because they say he's out of his mind. Apparently, uh, because of his ministry, because of what was going on, because of the amount of people that were drawn to him for healing, the amount of people that were, were being delivered of demonic oppression, the crowds crowded in. And there was so much demand and so much pressure that they were not even able to eat. And either from concern for Jesus because of not eating and so forth, and probably more likely concern for Jesus in the fact that he was not complying with the authorities and he was doing all sorts of wild stuff going beyond probably what they expected of a prophet or even a messiah making claims that he was the lord of the sabbath and so forth probably for all these reasons they said he's out of his mind his family thinks that jesus has lost it they are thinking this is just a little bit too much jesus This is a little over the top. I mean, miracles are okay and some truth here, but this circus that you are running with all these people pressing in on you and thinking you're Lord of the Sabbath and and, and being in controversy with the authorities, it's just wrong and it's time for a family intervention. We're, We're doing a family intervention, Jesus. We're coming to get you and to take you away and to give you some rest back home because obviously you've just kind of gone overboard, maybe read your Bible a little too much or something. We don't know. Here we are. We're going to intervene and take you home. And so Mark introduces us to what his family says and then concludes at the end with their actions related to what they're saying and what Jesus says to his family and to us as a result. After the short section where we see the family saying these things, Next up, scene two, we have the scribes. These are scribes that have come down from Jerusalem. Early on, we met the Pharisees. These, the Pharisees were, were very devout uh, followers of the Jewish law, and they had very uh, strong interpretations and additions they made to what the Bible says. Uh, but they were uh, powerful, influential, very devout. They were comprised mostly of lay people. Uh, but some of the scribes were Pharisees the, of the Pharisees' party. And this group opposed Jesus. And when Jesus earlier on uh, said he was Lord of the Sabbath, then healed on the Sabbath in, in violation of what they thought God's law said, they, they said, we don't want this sort of prophet. And they conspired to kill him. But now there's a whole new category, a, whole, a step up from the local Pharisees. The reports about Jesus have made their way down to Jerusalem. And now a delegation from Jerusalem has come to 
Galilee to confront Jesus. These are scribes. These are the official teachers. They're, they were called scribes because they wrote, they translated, or they copied the, the scriptures. But they also taught on the scriptures and interpreted the scriptures. They were considered kind of the, the authorities. They kind of were like a combination of, of law professors, religious leaders, and, and uh, government officials, really, in some ways. And, and they came, this delegation of scribes came, and they come from Jerusalem, they come to Galilee, and they come with some statements about Jesus. They come with the party line. They come with a resolute statement about what they think. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard about his miracles. They've heard about him casting demons out. And they say he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons and then he has an unclean spirit. Their party line is that this is not of God. See, they don't want Jesus to be an authority. They don't like what Jesus says. They don't like what he does. And so they have to come up with an explanation for his power and authority. If he walks in and, and is delivering people from demonic oppression, that's a significant thing. That's a powerful thing. And, and in Scripture, when it talks about Jesus doing that, we talked about this last week, the delivering people from demonic oppression, it isn't so much like a sideshow issue or something bizarre. It's a demonstration of the reality that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of light has come. And when the kingdom of light comes, it, it, it penetrates the darkness. It comes in and it displaces the darkness. It, it reveals the darkness for what it is. And the demons have to flee when he comes with his kingdom and his authority. It's, it's an exercise of authority on Jesus' part. And it's a powerful statement that this world and, and is no longer under the free control of the enemy, of Satan. Christ has come with his kingdom, and he's rescuing people. He's conquering the darkness. He's bringing the light. So it's a powerful statement. It's a profound statement of Jesus' authority to bring God's kingdom. It's a wonderful thing. Now, we don't necessarily see as much demonic oppression and deliverance. Um, I'm not sure all the reasons why. Part of it is that I think the blessings of, of Christianity have protected us from things. And some cultures that are further away and more into the occult, there's more of this stuff. And I can tell you stories related to that. But it also is around us and maybe just not revealed to the level that uh, we see here. When Jesus shows up, the kingdom of God reveals these things. And there's, there's manifestation of evil and deliverance. And so this is going on. It's fantastic. It's amazing. And they have to decide what to do with it. Now, for many, they put their faith in Jesus. But for the scribes and the authorities, they did not like what Jesus had to say and do. This idea of changing the laws or really fulfilling the laws of the Sabbath and so forth, they did not like. So they developed a party line. They developed some propaganda to put out there to explain how in the world he could be doing these things. And so their line is, he's possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebub is another name for Satan. He's possessed by Beelzebub, that's why. By the prince of demons he casts out demons. That's what's going on here. 
This is, this is uh, the kingdom of evil kind of plotting to deceive everybody. He's in league with Satan himself. He has an unclean spirit. That's what's going on. That is outrageous, provocative, and dangerous statements. Think about that. The Bible tells us clearly Jesus is God himself in the flesh. And yet these scribes from Jerusalem come down from Jerusalem up to, up to Galilee and are putting out this party line about Jesus, saying that he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, that this is all a scam by the devil himself. This is witchcraft that's going on. These are very serious accusations to make against Jesus. And there are very serious repercussions for it. We'll talk about that in a bit. So his family is saying he's out of his mind. The scribes are saying he's possessed by Beelzebub. And really, people say still all sorts of things about Jesus. Jesus is a figure you have to deal with. He is not someone that we can just dismiss. He's made a profound impact just in terms of history. His statements are fantastic. His teaching is wonderful. And so you have to deal with Jesus. And so people will say all sorts of things about Jesus. They'll come up with different party lines, different statements, different ideas that they'll propagate about Jesus. One, one thing that people say is that Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was a great moral teacher. And certainly he was. That's true. But there's a falsehood in that because usually when people say that, it's more than that he was a great moral teacher. They're saying that's all he was. He was only a great moral teacher. They deny the other aspects of who he is. That he's much more than a great moral teacher. That he is God in the flesh. He's the only Savior. He's Lord of all. And that saying that he's just a great moral teacher can be just as dangerous as saying he's possessed by Beelzebub. Because it's a party line that protects us from facing the reality of who he is. And allows us to dismiss the rest of Scripture, really, about Jesus. If you read the Bible, you will not say that he's merely a great moral teacher. You cannot say that. Other things people say is related to that. He was a, a, a social revolutionary. This is out there, maybe not so much in our culture, but elsewhere. He came to bring change. He came to address the oppressed and the poor. And to bring social change, he came to bring judgment against rich oppressors and freedom for the poor. He came to change society. And there's aspects of those things that are indeed are true. But often that's a denial or a neglect of the central mission of Jesus. To come and to glorify his Father, to make atonement for sins, to provide reconciliation, not so much in terms of rich and poor, though that's part of it, but in terms of guilty and holy. He came to atone for our sins against God, to reconcile us to God through his blood, through his death, through his resurrection, and then through that to transform our lives. And yes, indeed, affect society as well. But they'll say he's just a social revolutionary. Or this one, maybe more common. Jesus is just alright with me. That's a... Do we, brothers? Yes. 
Dewey Brothers song. And actually, in its day, in the early 70s, just all right was an understated way to say fantastic, actually. So, it, so in its day, originally, that it means Jesus is fantastic. But if you read it up on how the Doobie Brothers took that song, originally it was a gospel song. They took it and they left out some key verses. And if you listen to it now, days, it means kind of like Jesus is just all right. He's cool. Jesus is cool. I'm cool with Jesus. He's all right. You can be into Jesus. That's all right. I'm not really into him like you are, but he's all right. Jesus is cool. What's wrong with that? Jesus is not cool. Jesus is not just cool. Maybe he's cool in some ways. He's not just cool. Jesus made some really audacious claims that are not cool in our society. He made some very uncool things, uncool statements about himself. He said he was God. He said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. That's not cool. It's not cool to be exclusive. It's not cool to say you're the way, the truth, and life. It's not cool to draw attention to yourself in that way. It's not cool. It's audacious. It's profound. It's provocative. He's the way. He's the way to God. He's the truth. He's he's truth itself incarnate. He's life. He's the one who brings genuine life. That's what he's saying. But that's not cool. And... If you really understand what he's saying, he can't be just all right with you. He's actually got to be one of three things. Either he is Lord, indeed, and truthful, or he's a liar. Liars are not cool. Or he's a lunatic. He's crazy. Those are the only three options. These are some of the things that people say about Jesus. They're popular sayings. Maybe they're some of the things that you say or have said about Jesus. Our passage today warns us, encourages us to consider not what others say about Jesus, but what Jesus says to us. So let's listen to what Jesus says to us. First to the the scribes, as we make our way through the story, Jesus speaks to them. They say he... They say that he's possessed by Beelzebub. He's in league with Satan. That's how he casts out demons. And Jesus comes at this. And he comes at this telling them stories, speaking in parables. First, though, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He actually uses logic. He says, it doesn't make sense what you're saying. How can Satan cast out Satan? That makes no sense. Your party line, your propaganda is just patently stupid. It doesn't make sense. Satan cannot cast out Satan. If Satan's intention is to rule the world and to ruin people's lives, then he's not going to use to be opposed to that. He's not gonna, you know, say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna like cast out demons here. That that's that's like Satan's very confused if he's doing that. A kingdom divided will not stand. A house divided will fall. There's no way that he's gonna do that. That that would be like Adolf Hitler in the middle of World War II all of a sudden thinking, well why don't I, I'm going to actually take some of my army and we're going to go work for the Russians and with them and fight against my own army. That's what I'm going to do. Or I'm going to take some of them and fight against the allies on the other side because I just want to do that. That makes no sense. And as crazy as Hitler was, he knew enough not to do that. Satan is not going to fight against Satan. It makes no sense. And then Jesus says something very profound related to this. He says, but... 
So contrary to your statement, this ridiculous statement that somehow I'm in league with Satan to fight Satan, which is just obviously foolish, but let me tell you what really is going on. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, what's going on here, folks? I'm that strong man. And I have gone into the house of Satan. And I have bound him. And I am plundering his house right now. That's what Jesus is saying. He's making a profound statement about himself. I've bound him. And I'm marching in. And I'm releasing the captives. That's what's going on here. That's the reality here. That's the obvious implication of me delivering people from demonic oppression is what Jesus is saying, more or less. Jesus is performing really the greatest hostage rescue in history. And it isn't just those who are oppressed by demons in in a way that's manifest. It's really all of mankind apart from Christ's intervention. We are all hostages to Satan in one way or another because we are hostages to sin. Sadly, the sad reality is our natural disposition is to live in separation from God. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a tragedy that we don't like to face. We don't like to consider it, and I don't really like to talk about it, actually. <laughs> but it is a reality. And there's a greater reality beyond this reality. But that we have to face that, that, that we all have sinned. And we all are enslaved to sin, left to ourselves. We will do what we ought not to do. We will do what we know is wrong. We will offend God. We will offend others. All mankind, when they're honest, we all know we are sinners. And we seem to be enslaved at times to our sin. And the wages of that sin is death, to be cut off from our relationship with God. We were made for a relationship with God. And yet we're bound in caught in our sin. But Jesus came to perform a hostage rescue for us. He came to earth. He came to earth to bring his kingdom. He came to earth ultimately to die on the cross and rise again, to pay for sins. He went to that cross voluntarily and voluntarily chose to bear the sins of his people on the cross. And he paid with his blood, with his life, the just penalty for sin. He paid really that death, that separation on the cross. God in his holiness punished the Son on our behalf. Out of love for us, for his own glory. He did this and and then he rose again on the third day. And now through faith in him, when we turn from our sin and say, Help me, I'm a prisoner. I'm a hostage. Rescue me. And we put our faith in Him. Through that very act of faith, those, the truths of the gospel are now made our own truths. That our sins are forgiven. And we have new life in Him. And we're rescued. And there's, there's a rescue that goes on. It's the greatest hostage rescue in history. I love stories of hostage rescues. Uh, has anyone seen the movie Argo? Uh, recently came out. Wonderful movie. Uh, based on a true story, there's some changes in it um, for the purpose of drama, I think. But a wonderful story about six Americans who, who were in Iran when uh, the embassy was taken over, who made their way out and then stayed in the Canadian embassy. And then uh, it was actually 
real story is the Canadians did most of the work. We did, the Americans did little, but, but some significant parts. Uh, came in and basically they posed as a film crew uh, and they were able to sneak them out, uh, having them pose as a film crew out of country. And these six hostages were rescued. Great story. Hostage rescue stories are great and there's lots of other ones out there. But the greatest rescue story, hostage rescue story in history is Jesus' hostage rescue story where he comes as the strong man. He binds the strong man, Satan. He comes into this world where, where Satan rules through his lies and deceit. He binds him through his own authority. He binds him through the power and truth of the gospel. And then he plunders the house. He releases the hostages from the house. And you and I, if you are a believer here today, you are one of those released hostages because he plundered the house so you can be rescued. And if you haven't been rescued yet, all you need to do is turn to him and trust him. That's what's going on here. That's the truth that Jesus brings to these scribes who are confused about him and misunderstanding him. And then he says this. And these are words that make us tremble. He says, truly, I say to you, now I'm going to be the one talking. Now I'm going to be the one laying out some truth. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, isn't that great? All sins, all sorts of sins, no matter how heinous they are. No matter what sort of blasphemies you've spoken against God, they can be forgiven. All sorts. That's good news. That's wonderful. We've received forgiveness no matter what, no matter what we carry. Maybe you're here today and, and you're just a, you just have a sin in your life that maybe no one knows about. And you think, it's just too much. It's too big. It's too bad. It's too persistent. It has me in its power. There's no forgiveness for me. Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. If you would turn and trust Christ, that sin is completely forgiven. And you are released from its guilt and its power. Wonderful statement saying that all sorts of sins. But then he says this, but, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So what's he saying here? There is sin for which there's no forgiveness. The sin against the Holy Spirit, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness. What does that mean? Does that mean if you ever utter anything bad about the Holy Spirit, you're unforgiven, you're done? If you ever do anything to oppose God, you're done. No, we'd all, we'd all be in a lot of trouble if that were the case, right? We have all opposed and said things against God and His work. Does it mean if you are opposed like the scribes were in some way, that you just opposed to Jesus? You, you know, the minute you, you believe that, you're hopeless? No, because the Apostle Paul probably had that party line or something like it, and yet he came to Christ. What does this mean? What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? This is important to understand because I, I think many Christians, and there was a time in my life where we think, oh no, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I'm done. 
I said something bad, and I can remember a stage of my life where I went through thinking, I've, I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The reality is, if I had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, I really wouldn't care about things because I would have hardened my heart. Jesus is saying this to the scribes who have resolutely determined to hold to a party line and a statement that says that Jesus is in league with Satan. They have determined to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of God that's good, and say that's evil. They have resolutely determined, as their stance, as their lifelong stance, that the good work of God is evil. And that sin can't be forgiven. Why? Simply for this reason. If you think that God is evil you'll never turn to God. If you think that the gospel is not good news, but bad news, and then that's your resolute, long-term stand, you're not going to turn to the gospel. If you look at God's work in people's lives and say that's satanic, that's evil, then you're never going to want to engage God's work. You've cut yourself off from the very means to be forgiven. That's why it's unforgivable. That's why it's an eternal Sin. Donald English in his commentary says the following. I think we have this to put up. Their sin is that in the presence of God's grace and action, they have not only rejected it, but ascribed it to the devil. This is their fixed position. No wonder they will not find forgiveness. The sin against the Holy Spirit is portrayed as resolute attribution of God's gracious work to satanic origins. There is no forgiveness here because such an attitude is incapable of seeking it. Maybe an illustration would help. Maybe, uh, imagine, imagine you're in the desert. Somehow your car broke down in the middle of uh, Death Valley, and you have to walk on foot across Death Valley, and you're, and you're thirsty. And I think, was it three days you can live without water? You know, you're near the end of your third day, and things look pretty bad, and Along comes somebody, um, maybe in their car or whatever, in their off-road vehicle, they come by, and, and they've got a big old cooler of cold water in the back of their vehicle. And they find you lying there in the sand, and you say, they say to you, hey, i got cold water right here. Come on, have a drink. I'll take care of you. Well, I'll, I'll take you to the doctor. I'll take you to the hospital. You'll be okay. And you look at that, and you, and you think, that's an evil person. That's an evil person. And they're, they're, they're after me. They want to poison me with this water. And then they're going to do something to me. They're going to take me and they're going to kill me. I'm not taking this water and I'm not going with them. You've cut yourself off from the means of your rescue by saying that good is evil. It's somewhat absurd, but it's a picture of what Jesus is saying. That's the problem. The sad reality for the scribes is they were saying, you're evil and wrong. And so they cut themselves off. That's what it means when it talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here today, let me say, you're okay. You're not in danger. Because being here at this point means in some way you mustn't think that God's evil, right? I hope, I hope you're not here thinking that God's evil and the gospel is evil and so forth. There's some degree of hope and trust that he's good. And I would guess that it's not your resolute stance that he's evil. And as long as that is true, you have not 
blasphemed the Holy Spirit. As long as it's not become something for you that defines your whole life, I don't think you're in danger of this. But there's warning here. There's warning. And I think the warning can be summed up this way. Don't listen to what people say about Jesus. Listen to what he says about himself. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the propaganda. Don't believe the other sources, what somebody says about something, about something, who said something about Jesus. There's all sorts of stuff out there. There's all sorts of misunderstanding. And our own minds and souls can generate misunderstanding. And we can have our own statements about Jesus. I'm just amazed all the things that come in my mind about Jesus that are wrong. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I believe, said that often the problem is we spend too much time listening to ourselves instead of speaking to ourselves. That our struggles, our depression even, can come because we listen to the statements. We listen to the statements about Jesus, the statements about us as a result. Instead of really telling ourselves the truth that Jesus tells us, speaking to ourselves, listening to what Jesus says, not what others say about him. That's, that's the warning there. I don't want you to panic and be afraid of committing this sin, but instead to pursue his truth, to enjoy his truth, and to receive the blessing that's there. Final section, Jesus' response to his own family. His mother and brothers come, and they're standing outside. The crowd is probably sympathetic. This is a culture that valued, of course, the biological family. That's important. They're out there. They're calling for Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, your, your mother and brothers are out there calling for you. And they probably even know that they're saying, well, Jesus is a little bit crazy right now. We just need to take him away. Excuse us. And then Jesus has something to say that is profound and shocking. He answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around, who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is saying, what my own family says is not as important as what I say. My own family is not as important as the family of God. What they say is not as important as my ministry uh, to the family of God. The ones who do the will of God. What is the will of God? Well, the will of God is is manifold, but at the core, the will of God, I think, can be understood as simply believing in Jesus. Jesus had an interaction in John chapter 6. It says in verse 28, I think we have this to put up. He says, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They want to know, what is the work of God? What is the will of God? What does it mean to do the work of God, to do the will of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the will of God, to believe him, to believe in Jesus, to believe what he says, and then everything that follows with that. Jesus is saying, this is the most important family. My family may think I'm crazy, but this is my ultimate family, the family of God. This is, if you're a believer, this is your ultimate family. Your biological family is a blessing and a means of grace, but not ultimate. This is the ultimate family. Jesus answers his family. He says something profound in in light of what they are saying. If the bank come up as we close. 
What Jesus says is most important. People will say all sorts of things. Our own family may even say certain things. Those around us may say certain things. The scribes and the Pharisees say certain things. His family says he's out of mind. Jesus says the family of faith matters more than the biological family. The scribes say he's in league with Satan. Jesus says that's ridiculous and dangerous and untrue. And that I am the strong man. People say all sorts of things about Jesus. He's a good moral teacher, a social revolutionary, or he's just all right. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So how about you? What do you say about Jesus? Who do you say he is? Who does your life say he is? If someone were to observe you outside of Sunday and watch your interactions with others, Watch your dealing with adversity. If they observed you, what would your life say about who Jesus is? What's the answer to that? And I think that, that I think should be convicting for just about all of us. Let's ground ourselves in what Jesus says about himself. Let's learn every day to live in the truth about what he says to find ourselves by that, to listen to him and to ignore the all false claims. Maybe for you, this is all new. You've heard lots of other things said about Jesus and you've thought they are true. We would love to help you in your journey. We as a church want to give you all the time that you need. We're not pressuring you. This is not brought to merely bring pressure. This is a good place to investigate and consider. We have a course called the Alpha Course and other opportunities to help you. And by the way, for those who already trust in Christ, you need help in listening to what he says more than what others say about him. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot. Soul Christianity is unbiblical Christianity. We need each other. We need Sundays. We need small groups. We need friendships. And so what we as a church have intentional structures to help with that. And if you want to know about those things, ask. If you're not in a small group, get in a small group. So that the voice, the true voice, will fill your mind and heart more than those other voices. He's calling us to listen to what he says, not what others say. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And that you have something to say to us that's true and good and brings forgiveness and life as it's intended to be. Thank you that your voice is more powerful, more truthful than the other voices that are out there. Help us to listen, to believe, to follow. Even today, Lord, help us in the areas of our lives where we listen to other voices to listen to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.